Today's readings from Book of Psalms, Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near, man of your wonderful deeds. You say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge uprightly. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold its pillars firm. To the arrogant, I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak with outstretched neck. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt men. But it is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord, is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. As for me, I will declare this forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Well, I invite you to keep your Bibles open. Uh, it's good to have a Bible with you as we look at God's Word. And today we have a, a short passage, but with much application to the times in which we live. So let's pray. Uh, Lord our God, we are hungry and you feed us. This morning we pray that you would feed us from this passage of your Word and that you would cause it by your spirit to enter deep within us, that we might know of your majesty and your holiness and your righteousness and what it is that your purpose for mankind is, including for us. So, Lord, open our hearts, our minds and our ears and help me, Father, to proclaim faithfully this important passage today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the hand of the Lord there is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. What a potent symbol of God's judgment that is. This cup filled with red wine foaming and frothing with spices is an ancient symbol of God's righteous anger against the wicked. It's a symbol of God's judgment for which God's people give praise in our passage today because the Lord is the upright judge who judges uprightly. He deals with everything that's wrong and he makes it right. And even if in the world today we do not see that entirely fulfilled, yet in the cross of Jesus we know that he is accomplishing his purposes and we know how this will end. Also, I want to say, thankfully, the cup of God's wrath is not the only cup that he holds in his hand. We've been sharing the cup this morning, haven't we? There is also a cup of salvation that he holds in Psalm 116 and 
If you know the 23rd Psalm, as many do, there is a wonderful cup there, a cup that runs over with the joy of the Lord's anointed. But those cups are not this cup. This cup is the cup of the Lord's wrath, and whoever drinks of it will die in their sins. For the Lord will make them drink this cup to the bitter end, so that they stumble and fall, never to rise again. This is a cup of judgment. I'll have more to say about this cup later on today. But first, there's another theme that I want to pick up on along with this cup of God's wrath that's connected to it. It's the theme of justice and the rule of law because justice and the rule of law will always come under attack when the horns of the wicked are lifted against God. And that's what's happening in Australia today and in the world around us. Justice and the rule of law are coming under attack by the wicked. There are some people in our governments, in our law courts, in our media who don't respect God and therefore don't respect the rule of law. And you have to ask yourself, where will this end? Where will this end? Back in 1944, I've got a book I've been reading, written 1944. It's been republished lately because it's interesting. It's not by a Christian, but uh, what he says uh, fits in with what we're saying. It's written by an Austrian by the name of Friedrich Hayek, who warned about it in a little book called The Road to Serfdom. I'll be honest, I don't know if it's a Christian or not. I should qualify myself there. But it's not particularly a book from a Christian perspective. Let me say The Road to Serfdom doesn't end well for people like you and me. Hayek saw the problem in his day and he called it out for what it is, the start of totalitarianism, the start of totalitarianism. So when a Jewish man gets arrested for holding a flag while other protesters are allowed to chant death to the Jews, the rule of law is coming under attack. When our government favours the yes campaign over the no campaign and uses their power to suppress speakers in the no campaign, you can tell that the rule of law is coming under attack. When our Minister of Police, would you believe, publicly supports illegal protesters, as she just did in Newcastle, you know that the rule of law is coming under attack. How can a Minister of Police stand with those who break the law? She should resign if she wishes to do that. So then what is the rule of law? We take it for granted. We've grown up with it. We assume that it operates. What is the rule of law? Well, a classic definition says the rule of law is the absolute supremacy of regular law as opposed to the influence of arbitrary power. In other words, leaders and kings must sit under the law. Rex Lex. Not... Uh, actually, Lex Rex, I think it is. The, the king rules or the, or the law rules the king. That, uh, I should be careful which way I put those things around. The point is, leaders and kings must sit under the law. Now, this arises from a biblical view, a biblical perspective of justice. There is a judge who judges uprightly who, to whom we must all give an account in our lives. There is a God, a judge, who judges uprightly to whom we must all give an account. And since no one is above the lawgiver, God, it follows that no one can be above the law, no matter who you are. But the rule of law is fragile. 
very fragile because when people turn away from God, the rule of law breaks down. The very reasons for adhering to such a thing is taken away when you take God out of the picture and immediately the old power games return. It then appears that the elites can do almost anything and get away with it while those who are out of favour are continually attacked. Lawfare. We see it increasing in our world. Judges find ways to avoid the letter of the law in order to give preference to political agendas. And before you know it, the whole system breaks down. Hayek says this, this is really interesting, it is very significant and characteristic that socialists and Nazis, remember he's writing 1944, Socialists and Nazis have always protested against merely formal justice, that is, according to the letter of the law. They have always demanded a socialisation of the law and at the same time given their support to movements which undermine the rule of law. That's how totalitarianism begins. We're looking today in Australia with laws about the control of the media um, and anti, you know, disinformation and those sorts of laws in which the government will determine the truth, it's undermining the rule of law. So I believe God is allowing something similar to happen in Australia now as to what happened in Russia in 1917, Germany in 1933, China in 1949. It's almost as if our government wants to take the place of God in our lives telling us how to live, what to think, and when to speak. You may think this will never happen to you, says Hayek, but then he admits, I never thought it would happen to me. In 1944, he said, it only took 15 years for Germany to descend into a world of totalitarian pain. 15 years. One of the key early indicators was the breakdown in the rule of law. So, be warned. We are living in a nation where the rule of law is breaking down. The government's just let all these criminals out when they didn't need to. The rule of law is breaking down. Are we witnessing a totalitarian shift in our nation under the banner of social justice and critical theory? I think we are. Did you know, for example, that in Australia there has been a 591% increase in anti-Semitic behaviour in the past month? They've updated the figure from when the article was published. It was 482. It's uh, with the extra things since it was published, uh, I'm checking yesterday, 591% increase in anti-Semitic behaviour in Australia in one month. This is an indicator of how quickly things can get out of hand when governments fail to uphold the rule of law and apply it equally to all people. And it ought to lead us to much careful and prayerful consideration. So this is where Psalm 75 comes in because this little psalm was written in response to the problem of injustice in the world. It's a big problem. There are bad people out there who want to do bad things. There are arrogant people out there who will do anything to gain power. But it is God who judges. 
He brings one down, he exalts another. And that's a truth that's worth its weight in gold. Psalm 75 is a song of praise to the upright judge who judges uprightly in all things. And it's no coincidence to me that this psalm should have been written to the tune of Do Not Destroy. There are other psalms that share this same tune of Do Not Destroy and they remind us that our God is a merciful judge whose mercy we desperately need in our lives. And so we say, O Lord, judge righteously, but do not destroy in wrath. Remember mercy. This is our God. And today we are invited to renew our hope in him, no matter what the wicked may do. Because in the end, it's the Lord who judges. He is the upright judge. And it's a fool who thinks they can escape the judgment of the upright judge. So let's start by looking at verse 1. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. Men tell of your wonderful deeds. This opening verse is meant to be sung by all God's people together. It's a kind of chorus. We give thanks to you, O God, because as your people we see your justice and your mercy at work in our daily lives. Men tell of your wonderful deeds, just as Dit has done this morning. We tell of God's wonderful deeds in our lives how he has changed and transformed us. And so we put our hope in him. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. Men tell of your wonderful deeds. But then what does it mean exactly for God's name to be near to us? It is a bit obscure. God's name is near to us. I think it simply means that God is with us and that we know his abiding presence. That we, as his people, experience God's goodness and we know that his love is real. His name is near to us. We are, after all, called Christians. We own the name of Jesus. We bear his name. And if we go back in the Bible, we see how God's name is revealed by God so that we can know who he is, what he is like, how to worship him, how to enjoy him. So we go back to Exodus and we read, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Yahweh. The Lord. The God of justice and mercy. The compassionate one. Who does not leave the guilty unpunished. The great I am who I am. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, in whose name Moses led the Israelites out of their bondage in Egypt. The God who makes and keeps covenant love with his people. What does God's name mean to you today? Do you know where to find God's name in the Bible? Where would you turn? 
Do you know some of the different names of God? There's only a couple on the screen. Can you think of others? See, if you don't know God's name, who are you praying to? One of the embarrassments as a pastor is you get people coming in and out and you see somebody maybe three months and you think, oh, I can't remember that person's name. Or I get their names mixed up and I, oh. Names are important. They're very personal. Part of who we are. Do you know God's name? Do you know what God's name means? What God's name reveals about his character and his purposes? For he declares with great fullness his nature to us in his name. To know God's name well is to be able to pray expressively in every circumstance. His name is so expressive, so personal. Do you know God's name? Jesus says that we should pray to God by calling him our Father, our Father in heaven. Pray that his name be hallowed, that is, treated as holy by everyone, respected, lifted up, honoured. I like to say Father is the Christian name for God. Our Father, Abba. You can learn a lot about someone's faith just by listening to how they speak of God and whether they use his name in their prayers. Is he just a God to you? Or is he Father? Is he the gracious and compassionate one? Well, when you were baptised, those of you who were baptised, what did it mean for you to be baptised into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Three names of one God, the triune God, the Christian God. Isn't it true that God's name defines your whole identity as a Christian? Or again, Jesus says in another place, wherever two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Isn't that beautiful? What a blessing we miss out on when we just don't gather in his name. Do we know who Jesus is or just that we don't want to meet with him? So important, it really is, to get back to these basics. In a world of injustice, brokenness and shame, you need to know who the Lord is, the one in whom you've put your faith. The psalmist knows God's name. What about you? The Lord is the God of heaven and earth. He is the upright judge who judges uprightly and he has loved us with an everlasting love in Christ Jesus our Lord. He exercises justice but he also shows mercy to sinners like us and so we are not destroyed. So to be a Christian today is to enjoy the nearness of God's name and to worship him by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us as his people.
Truly the Lord is near to those who love him and who call upon his name. Therefore we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. Men tell of your wonderful deeds. Now in verses 2 to 5, God has a message for the whole world. It is God who speaks now. First one was a chorus from the church. Now the Lord himself is speaking to the world. God says in verse 2, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge uprightly. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold its pillars firm. To the arrogant, I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak with outstretched neck. Got the horns going. Basically, God is saying to the wicked, pull your horns in and live. Stop all this boasting about how clever you are, your self-reliance, your power games, your investment portfolios. Don't be fools. Don't put your trust in those. Don't exalt yourself in your own eyes. Pull your horns in and live. In ancient times, horns were potent symbols of power. Not only did they represent the strength of an animal like a bull, but you could use those horns of different animals as trumpets to signal an army, or perhaps two as megaphones to amplify your voice. Here in our passage today, the word is used metaphorically. God is saying to the arrogant, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak with outstretched neck. Don't blow your own trumpet. Again, the Lord will cut off the horns of the wicked. But the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. For God says, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge uprightly. The wicked will not escape. Ultimately, God is in control. He is in control of time and space and eternity. He is in control of our lives, each one of us. Even when the horns of the wicked are being lifted against heaven and when it seems like the world is about to fall into chaos, when people let you down, when you lose your job, when your doctor gives you bad news, when you feel overwhelmed by the troubles of life, God says, it is I who hold its pillars firm. The stability you need in life is found here, in the one who holds the pillars firm. Those who oppose God's righteous rule find it infuriating that they cannot escape from God's judgment. They, they will die in their sins, having drunk the dregs of the cup of God's wrath, and they'll face the Lord as their judge in the heavenly courtroom. It is a hateful doctrine to those who are opposed to God's rule. But on that day, God's people will say, truly, he has done all things well. He is the upright judge. He is the saviour of his people. He has heard my prayers and my pleas and he has answered them well. Therefore let every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For God's purposes are not defeated by our sin. We've shared in the Lord's Supper, we've reminded ourselves of the strong promises that God has set before us in Christ Jesus. 
So if you're feeling wobbly today, like the pillars of your life are shaking and trembling, hold on to Jesus. Hold on to the Lord. Humble yourself before God and he will lift you up. He won't leave you or forsake you. He won't abandon you to your sins if you only humble yourself and place your life into his fatherly care. He is the upright judge and he cares for you. Now in verses 6 to 8, we have what I've called three lessons for mankind. One per verse. Basically, each verse adds extra depth and detail to the emerging picture of God as the righteous judge. These verses fill in the detail. We've sketched the outline, now we're just going to fill in some more colour. First of all, look around you and you'll see in the world of politics and power that there are no certainties. Nations rise and nations fall. Kings and governors may enjoy success for a season or two, but then they're swept away and forgotten. And those who terrify us now will soon become yesterday's news and yesterday's heroes. For in verse 6, no one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man. In the end, only God can do that. Salvation doesn't come from any human source, but from God alone. This is something we all know, isn't it? We know it in our heads, but in our hearts sometimes, uh, not so much. We're prone to wander, we're prone to doubt, we lose attention, we lose focus. When God isn't there for us in the way that we want or expect, then we become angry, disillusioned, disappointed, restless, unsettled. Where's God? He hasn't done what I thought he should. We take our eyes off Jesus, we look at our belly buttons, we drift. But God says, don't look around, east, west, south. Look up, look to me. Why on earth would you go to the east, to Babylon or Assyria, to be exalted by a human king? Why would you go west across the nations to the, to the sea, nations across the sea? Or, or why would you go south to the deserts of Egypt to seek power and prosperity from their princes? It doesn't make sense if we were a follower of the Lord because Jerusalem is already at the center point of faith. Remember, when Asaph wrote this psalm, this song would have been sung where? In the holy temple of the Lord, it would have been sung right there where God dwelt among his people, at the very heart of that theological compass. If you're singing the song, Psalm 75, in the temple of the Lord, I mean, geographically and theologically, to take just one step away, whether to the east or the west or the north or the south, doesn't matter. If you're moving away from there, you're moving away from the Lord. Moving in the wrong direction, away from the most exalted place on earth. And all too often, that's exactly what Israel's kings did to their shame. They were tempted to look away from the Lord to the world around them, see the political situation that's going on, and they would reach out to Assyria. They would reach out to Egypt. They'd try and make those political deals and and make themselves safe in the world. But they were looking in the wrong place. They were looking in the wrong place. What about us? Are we any better? We have Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. We claim him as our King. But how often do we go and seek advice in all the wrong places? From TikTok influencers or Instagram or so-called experts. Rather than from the Lord and from his word. Salvation does not 
come from any human source, but from God alone. So don't look around you, look up. That's lesson number one. And the second one is like it. We read in verse 7, For it is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. This second lesson is like the first. It teaches us that God will bring everyone to account. And this is good news for us as God's people, especially in times when the wicked are lifting their horns against heaven. We know that God is a God of justice and we know that pride comes before a fall because he will hold these people to account. Once upon a time there was a thief who boasted of having royal blood. He took great pride in the fact that one of his ancestors was a king. The irony is that even after he'd been arrested, he still thought he was someone special, so much so that he insisted on being called Sir. Keep your hands off me, he said. When you address me, you shall call me Sir. Very well, Sir, said the policeman. This way to the station and to the cells. That's pride, isn't it? We convince ourselves that we have the right to be treated like royalty, to be called sir and madam and rule our lives as we see fit, but we're still headed for the cells. We still have to face the judge. If we don't wake up to that fact, then we are fools indeed. Remember this, it is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. And then finally in verse 8, the third lesson is this sobering warning of God's judgment, the cup of God's wrath, which signifies God's righteous anger against the wicked. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. The cup of God's wrath appears in several places in the scriptures, not just here. For example, God tells Jeremiah the prophet to take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And the first place God sends Jeremiah is Jerusalem and Judah, his own people, for judgment starts with the house of God. And then there's a long line of other kingdoms and nations before you finally get to Babylon, the anti-city the city opposed to God's people, the Antichrist place. But whether you're in Jerusalem or you're in Babylon, the cup of the Lord's wrath is something to deal with. Same in the book of Revelation. The visions of the Apostle John reveal something very similar. Babylon the Great, the symbol of mankind's wickedness, is personified as a prostitute. And all the inhabitants of the world run to her. They love her for her riches, her luxuries, her food, and her many intimate pleasures. Oh, how we love Babylon. And then John tells us in Revelation chapter 16, a day is coming when the righteous judge will give her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. It's the same cup. A cup of God's wrath, a cup of terror and divine vengeance against all the wickedness and sinfulness of mankind. And while this is happening, back in Revelation chapter 14, three angels are sent out by Jesus to proclaim, would you believe, the eternal gospel. Proclaim the eternal gospel. 
which includes the warning that those who worship the beast will also drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. And the third angel says, if anyone worships the beast, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Friends, the point of all this is that the day is almost here when the cup of God's wrath will be poured out once and for all. Those who have not received or refused to accept the gift of God's forgiveness will be forced to drink this cup to its dregs. I don't want that to be you. So the question you need to ask yourself today is where do I stand with God? See, the good news is you do not have to drink the cup of the God's wrath if you don't want to because Jesus has drunk it for you. But first you need to accept that the judgment of the upright judge is right. You need to surrender that to him. You need to surrender your life to the judge and then receive his mercy as a sinner saved by grace, crying out, O Lord, do not destroy. Do not destroy. That's how salvation works. So my fourth and final point for today, life beyond judgment, verses 9 and 10. As for me, I wonder who's speaking here. I will declare this forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. I hear the voice of Jesus here offering us life beyond judgment through his death on the cross the one who now reigns at the Father's right hand forever. That's not all. He now offers us the cup of salvation, brimming with God's blessing, just like the psalmist in Psalm 116 declares, How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of my Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all the people. How do we do this? Very simply, sharing the good news living the Christian life, keeping our promises, upholding justice, defending the truth, doing that which is right and honourable, being thankful to God for his kindness to us. These are some of the ways in which you and I can respond to God's word today. In conclusion then, three things that we learnt from Psalm 75. Perhaps you've seen other things as well. I give you these three. First and foremost, We have learnt today that God is the upright judge who judges uprightly. He opposes the proud, he cuts off the horns of the wicked, he defends the widow, he fights for truth, he keeps his promises and his name is near to those who love him. So it is right that we should give him thanks and praise just as the people of God do in verse 1. Many horns have been lifted up against God recently in Australia and around the world It's almost as if our governments want to take the place of God, telling us how to live, what to think, when to speak. But our God is the upright judge who judges uprightly. Second thing we've learned today is that God's judgment is real. A cup of God's wrath is no joke. The power of alcohol to lay you low make you stagger and reel and fall down so you can't get up is just an, an illustration of the reality of God's 
judgment that is to come. All the wicked will drink of this cup of God's wrath. But for those who love the Lord, there is hope because Jesus has drunk the bitter cup that was reserved for us so that we don't have to. What you need to do is to make your peace with God through Jesus Christ and receive from him the cup of salvation and the free gift of eternal life. Finally, as we live in the world today, we need to uphold justice and defend the rule of law. It's an outworking of what we believe about the character of our God to the extent that we are able. As Christians, we have a duty to pray for the, to the upright judge about the things that we see wrong in our world and ask him to uphold the cause of the humble poor and that he might turn many hearts to Jesus. Where we can, we ought to defend the rule of law and uphold the principles of justice that come from a biblical worldview. Otherwise, we may find ourselves very soon in a world of totalitarian pain and sooner than we think. But even if that happens, even if that happens, we must never lose our focus on the eternal gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. For one way or another, Our world is destined to drink the cup of the Lord's wrath and they will drain it to its dregs unless they hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus can take that and drink it for them. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For Jesus has drunk the cup of God's wrath for us. So let us sing of the Lord's justice this morning, knowing our hope is Sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus drank the cup for us. Help us, Lord, to know this truth and to live by it, defending those who are facing injustice, defending the rule of law, not so that we may be saved, but because we have been saved and because it's part of the very essence of your character. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.